This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast, episode 41. This week, we honor the year 2010, along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2010. We also look at the case for putting Eric B. and Rakim into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and our Spotlight Hall of Fame is the Canadian Music Hall of Fame in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. This podcast celebrates those who have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll also look at the case for certain artists to be inducted into the hall who aren't there yet. Plus, every week we'll discuss a different musical Hall of Fame, Walk of Fame, or Museum and celebrate someone who's been inducted into them. Let's start with our main focus of the podcast, which is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Hall Foundation was established on April 20th, 1983. Former Atlantic Records chairman Ahmet Erdogan was the head of the foundation at the time. Three years later, a committee chose Cleveland, Ohio to be the site of the physical location for the museum over Detroit, Michigan, New York City, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Memphis, Tennessee, and Cincinnati, Ohio. I say physical location because members have actually been inducted into the hall since 1986 before the building was even opened. Cleveland was chosen because of what DJ Alan Freed did to promote rock and roll, including mainstreaming the phrase rock and roll, which was originally black slang for sex, and for also holding the first rock and roll concert. Ground was broken for the building on June 7, 1993. It opened on September 1, 1995 at 1100 Rock and Roll Boulevard on the shore of Lake Erie. The hall gets over 400,000 visitors a year on average. Normal hours of operation are between 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. except for Thursdays when they're open until 9 p.m. They are normally open later in the summer months. General admission at the moment is $30. Children 6 through 12 are $20. College students, first responders, military members, and Northeast Ohio residents are $25. And kids 5 and under Hall of Fame members and Cleveland residents are free. ID is required to get the discounts. Rockhall.com is their website. That's R-O-C-K-H-A-L-L dot C-O-M. And as with all places these days due to COVID restrictions, check with the website for updated information and hours. The year was 2010. The average cost of a new house was $232,880. The cost of a gallon of gas was $2.73, and a postage stamp set you back 44 cents. Barack Obama was in the second year of his presidency. Julia Gillard became the first female prime minister of Australia. Dilma Rousseff became the first female president of Brazil. The Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world at this particular minute, opened for business. A 7.0 earthquake hit Haiti, devastating the country and killing 316,000 people. 
2010 seemed to be the year of plane crashes. Ethiopian Airlines Flight 409 crashed, killing 90 people on board. A plane that crashed in Libya killed 103 out of 104 people. A plane overshot a runway in India, killing 158 people. A plane crashed near Islamabad, Pakistan, killing 152 people. A plane crashed in Cuba, killing 68 people. A sculpture by Alberto Giacometti sold at an auction for $103.7 million. The president of Niger was overthrown in a military coup. An 8.8 earthquake in Chile triggered a Pacific tsunami and killed 525 people. Massive flooding in Pakistan killed over 1,600 people. Mass shootings at two mosques in Pakistan killed 94 worshippers. And the H1N1 virus pandemic was declared over. So at least something good happened that year. Goodness. Also, volcanic ash from a volcano in Iceland led to planes not being able to fly much in Western Europe for a few weeks. An explosion at an oil platform in the Gulf of Mexico led to an oil spill that hit Texas and other Gulf states for most of the year. A computer program glitch led to a 36-minute crash of the New York Stock Exchange, which wiped out over a trillion dollars in investments. The market recovered the next day. Hopefully people didn't sell during that time. A dam burst in Hungary flooded a river downstream with mud and water killing 10 people. WikiLeaks leaked out U.S. government documents on the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. An earthquake and tsunami off the coast of Indonesia killed over 400 people. A volcano in Indonesia killed 353 people. The Arab Spring series of protests that toppled a few Arab governments at that time started late in the year in Tunisia with the attempted suicide of a street vendor. Famous people who passed away in 2010 include Poland's President Lech Kaczynski, who was killed in a plane crash, actors Gene Simmons, Pernell Roberts, Francis Reed, Ian Carmichael, Lionel Jeffries, Corey Haim, Merlin Olson, Peter Graves, Robert Culp, John Forsyth, Dixie Carter, Lynn Redgrave, Art Linklender, Gary Coleman, Dennis Hopper, Rue McClanahan, Patricia Neal, Gloria Stewart, Tony Curtis, Steve Lanzenberg, Jill Clayburgh, Tom Bosley, Barbara Billingsley, Simon McCorkendale, Fess Parker, and Leslie Nielsen all passed away in 2010, as did producer Dino De Laurentiis, directors Blake Edwards, Irving Kirshner, and Gene Rollin, author J.D. Salinger, historian Howard Zinn, U.S. Secretary of State Alexander Haig, fashion designer Alexander McQueen, International Olympic Committee head Juan Antonio Samaranch, basketball player Manute Bowl, U.S. Senator Robert Byrd, New York Yankees baseball owner George Steinbrenner, TV show producer Stephen J. Cannell, Penthouse magazine publisher Bob Guccione, U.S. presidential advisor Ted Sorensen, U.S. diplomat Richard Holbrook, and Trinidad and Tobago president Ellis Clark. The Nobel Peace Prize went to Liu Xiaobo from China for the struggle for human rights in China. 
Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Ryan Reynolds was named People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. And Minka Kelly was named Esquire Magazine's Sexiest Woman Alive. In books, the biggest selling novel of the year was Stig Larsson's The Girl in Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest, which is the last book in the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series. Other big novels were The Confession by John Grisham, The Help by Catherine Stockett, Safe Haven by Nicholas Sparks, Dead or Alive by Tom Clancy, Sizzling Sixteen by Janet Evanovich, Crossfire by James Patterson, Port Mortuary by Patricia Cornwell, and Full Dark No Stars by Stephen King. In nonfiction books, the big sellers were John Heileman and Mark Halperin's Game Change about the 2008 presidential election, The Big Short by Michael Lewis about the 2008 financial crisis, and Shit My Dad Says by Justin Halpin, which is about, well, the title self-explanatory. There were other big sellers written by George W. Bush, Laura Bush, Mitt Romney, Chelsea Handler, Mitch Album, Elizabeth Gilbert, Kitty Kelly, Stephen Hawking, John Stewart, Keith Richards, and Bob Woodward, along with, of course, anti-Obama books by Laura Ingram, David Limbaugh, and Sarah Palin, because that's what you do during someone's presidency. In technology, on June 27, 2010, Steve Jobs introduced the world to the first iPad, which kicked off the tablet trend of the 2010s. The iPhone 4 came out with a selfie camera and retina screen, which everybody now knows and loves. Android phones came into their own with Samsung starting their Galaxy S series. By the way, BlackBerry and Nokia were the best-selling phones in 2010 worldwide. How times have changed. Video streaming started to become a thing ever so slowly, and an app that was first only for Apple iOS started. That app? Instagram. The first self-replicating synthetic bacterial cell was created in 2010, along with a 3D camcorder. Jetpacks began to be sold commercially, along with motion control video game accessories like the Xbox Kinect. Virgin Galactic started to make private space flight a reality. The first spontaneous car rental company, Car2Go, started just before Zipcar made the idea of going down the street to rent a car from a parking lot fashionable. A solar-powered airplane circled the globe nonstop for the first time. Anonymous went after politicians and corporations who were in favor of shutting down file-sharing sites like LimeWire in a coordinated cyber attack. In movies, animated and young adults movies ruled the box office, taking nine of the top ten spots. Toy Story 3 was the biggest movie, along with a live-action version of Alice in Wonderland, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part 1, Shrek Forever After, The Twilight Saga Eclipse, Iron Man 2, Tangled, Despicable Me, and How to Train Your Dragon. The only truly adult movie to make the top ten was Christopher Nolan's Inception. No argument about Iron Man being an adult movie. Superhero movies are kids' movies that adults can enjoy. Enjoy it for what it is.
At the Academy Awards for Movies of 2010, by the way, The King's Speech actually was the big winner. It won Best Picture along with Tom Hooper for Best Director and Colin Firth for Best Actor. Natalie Portman won Best Actress for Black Swan. Christian Bale won Best Supporting Actor and Melissa Leo won Best Supporting Actress, both for the movie The Fighter. Musically, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross of Nine Inch Nails won Best Film Score for The Social Network, while Randy Newman's song We Belong Together from Toy Story 3 won Best Song. In television, Jay Leno became host of The Tonight Show for the second time after NBC had a falling out with previous host Colin O'Brien. Conan went on to host a late-night talk show on TBS for a number of years. Mary Hart retired from hosting Entertainment Tonight after 30 years. Film critic Gene Shalit left the Today Show after 40 years. Host Larry King left CNN's Larry King Live. A gunman took over the Discovery Communications building in Maryland, home of the Discovery Channel. He was shot and killed after a standoff with police for several hours. MTV aired a segment of their show Teen Mom in which one of the moms beat up her boyfriend in front of her kid. The show's producers did not stop the abuse, nor did they report the abuse to the police. Still, MTV aired the abuse footage as part of the show. Once the episode aired, angry fans of the show reported the mom to police who arrested the mom for felony domestic assault. Shows that debuted in 2010 included American Pickers, Spartacus, Undercover Boss, How to Make It in America, The Ricky Gervais Show, Good Luck Charlie, Blue Bloods, Trim, Ben 10 Ultimate Alien, Pretty Little Liars, Bert the Conqueror, Hot in Cleveland, Rizzoli and Isles, Covert Affairs, The Real Housewives of D.C., Boardwalk Empire, Hawaii Five-O, Lone Star, Sister Wives, IRT Deadliest Roads, Young Justice, and The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Shows ending in 2010 included Dollhouse, American Chopper, Heroes, Numbers, Scrubs, Better Off Ted, Unsolved Mysteries, Ben 10 Alien Force, Ugly Betty, King of the Hill, Lost, 24, Law and Order, Deal or No Deal, The Hills, Wife Swap, Chris Angel, Mind Freak, and the soap opera As the World Turns. And more than half of those shows either got rebooted or, in Scrub's case, are about to be rebooted. The top 10 TV shows for 2010 were Two Nights of American Idol, Two Nights of Dancing with the Stars, NCIS, Sunday Night Football, The Mentalist, NCIS Los Angeles, CSI, an undercover boss. And at the Emmy Awards, Mad Men won Best Drama, while Modern Family won Best Comedy. In sports, the Winter Olympics were held in Vancouver, Canada, and was one of the most successful Olympics ever in terms of money made and also attendance. The United States won the most overall medals with 37, but Canada won the most gold medals with 14 including a much-sought-after gold medal in men's hockey since ice hockey is Canada's official national sport. German luger Nadar Komertaschvi was killed during a practice run down the luge track just before the opening ceremonies when he hit his head. 
In football, the Green Bay Packers won the Super Bowl, which was played for that season in 2011 in Texas. The Black Eyed Peas were the halftime show entertainment that year. Auburn won the NCAA College Football Championship. In baseball, Roy Halladay of the Philadelphia Phillies pitched two perfect games that season, which was the first time that happened in the modern era of baseball. One of them was pitched during a baseball playoff game, which was the second time that that had happened in the modern era of baseball. Closing pitcher Trevor Hoffman became the first closer to get 600 saves in a career, and the San Francisco Giants won the World Series for baseball that year. In basketball, LeBron James took his talents from Cleveland to play for the Miami Heat, but not before he made his announcement on an ESPN one-hour TV special called The Decision. That was followed almost a week later by a rally in Miami, at which he boasted in front of new teammates Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh that they would win not one championship, not two, not three, not four, but more which really rubbed people the wrong way and turned LeBron into a villain in NBA fans' eyes, a role he did not relish or enjoy. For the record, the Heatles, as those three were known by at that point, won two championships and LeBron left the team after four years to go back to play for Cleveland. As far as basketball championships went for the year, the Los Angeles Lakers actually won the NBA championship that year. The Seattle Storm won the WNBA championship. The Duke Blue Devils won the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship. And the Yukon Huskies completed their second undefeated season and won the NCAA Women's Basketball Championship. Alberto Contador won the Tour de France in cycling. The Chicago Blackhawks won Hockey's Stanley Cup, and the Washington Stealth won the National Lacrosse Indoor League. In horse racing, Super Saver won the Kentucky Derby but did not win the Triple Crown, losing the Preakness Stakes to Looking at Lucky and the Belmont Stakes to Drosselmeyer. In golf, Phil Mickelson won the Masters Golf Tournament, Graham McDowell won the U.S. Open, Lewis Othelson won the British Open, and Martin Kamer won the PGA Championship. On the women's side, Yano Seng won the Kraft Serial Nabisco Championship and also the Women's British Open. Christy Kerr won the LPGA Championship and Paula Creamer won the U.S. Women's Open. In tennis, Roger Federer won the Australian Open while Rafael Nadal won the French Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. That year's men's U.S. Open, by the way, was also famous for having the longest tennis match in history, as in the first round, John Isner beat Nicholas Mahut after 11 hours and 5 minutes, which were actually played over three days. For the ladies, Serena Williams won the Australian Open and Wimbledon, Francesca Schiavone won the French Open, and Kim Clijsters won the U.S. Open. In soccer, the Togo national team was attacked while they were in Angola by an Angolan rebel group. Spain won the World Cup, Atletico Madrid won the Europa League, and Internacional won the Champions League. In league championships, 
Chelsea won in England, Marseille won in France, Barcelona won in Spain, Internazionale won in Italy, and Bayern Munich won in Germany, while the Colorado Rapids won the MLS Cup in America. The second season of the Women's Professional League in America took place. FC Gold Pride won that championship. In motorsports, Sebastian Vettel won the Formula One championship, Dario Franchitti won the IndyCar championship, and Jimmy Johnson won the NASCAR championship. Football quarterback Drew Brees won the Associated Press Male Athlete of the Year, while Olympic skier Lindsey Vaughn won the Female Athlete of the Year. In music, it was the year of the Bieber, as Justin Bieber broke records left and right. A musical telethon was held in support of victims of the Haitian earthquake. Men at Work lost a copyright infringement lawsuit over parts of their song, Down Under, sounding too much like another song called Kookaburra. Zoli Teglas became the lead singer of Pennywise. Lady Gaga wore her famous meat dress to the MTV Video Music Awards, which she dominated with the music video to her and Beyonce's song Telephone. And the Beatles finally started streaming their catalog on iTunes. Bands that formed in 2010 included Disclosure, Bastille, and the Florida Georgia Line. Bands that broke up in 2010 included Aha, Brooks and Dunn, Dio, Supertramp, and Type O Negative. Bands that reformed included The Chicks, Alabama, Bone Thugs and Harmony, Bush, The Cars, Fuel, Hole, Pavement, Soundgarden, System of a Down, and Ugly Kid Joe. Artists who passed away in 2010 were entertainer Lena Horn, Peter Steele of Typo Negative and Carnivore, Ronnie James Dio, Eddie Fisher, Teddy Pendergrass, jazz guitarist Herb Ellis, record producer Mitch Miller, jazz singer Abby Lincoln, singer Solomon Burke, opera singer Dame Joan Sutherland, Paul Gray of Slipknot, Gregory Isaacs, Captain Beefheart, Tina Marie, Doug Figer of The Knack, Gregory Slay of Remy Zero, Lee Freeman of Strawberry Alarm Clock, Chili B of Nucleus, Rapper Guru of Gangstar, Dave Fisher of The Highwaymen, Country Singer Judy Lynn, Country Singer Slim Bryant, Country Singer Jimmy Dean, Harvey Fuqua of The Moon Glows, Gospel Singer Walter Hawkins, Andy Hummel of Big Star, Al Goodman of Ray Goodman and Brown, Richie Hayward of Little Feet, Mitch Dane of the Dillards, Michael Bean of the Call, singer King Coleman, and gospel singer Albertina Walker. Eminem's Recovery was the biggest selling album of the year. Other big selling albums included Lady Antebellum's Need You Now, Taylor Swift's Speak Now, Justin Bieber's My World 2.0, Susan Boyle's The Gift. Lady Gaga's The Fame, Chardet's Soldier of Love, Drake's Thank Me Later, Usher's Raymond vs. Raymond, and Kesha's Animal. Kanye West's album My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy came out for the 2010 holiday season but became a huge force in 2011. Kesha's song TikTok was the biggest song of the year. Other top songs of the year included Lady Antebellum's Need You Now, Train's Hey Soul Sister, Katy Perry and Snoop Dogg's California Girls, Usher and Will I Am's OMG, 
B.O.B. and Haley Williams' Airplanes, Eminem and Rihanna's Love the Way You Lie, Lady Gaga's Bad Romance, Tayo Cruz's Dynamite, and also Tayo Cruz's song with Ludacris, Break Your Heart. At the Grammy Awards for the music of 2010, Arcade Fire became the first indie artist to win Album of the Year for their album, The Suburbs. Lady Antebellum, now called Lady A, won Song and Record of the Year for Need You Now. Jazz artist Esperanza Spalding beat out heavily favored Justin Bieber for Best New Artist. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Oslo, Norway, Germany won for the song Satellite. At the Tony Awards, Memphis won Best Musical and La Caja Faux won Best Revival of a Musical. At the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, the Hall inducted Geffen Records founder David Geffen, songwriter Otis Blackwell, the songwriting and producing team of Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, songwriter Mort Schumann, songwriter Jesse Stone, and the songwriting team of Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel into the non-performers category. In the performers category, the Hall inducted Genesis, Jimmy Cliff, The Hollies, The Stooges, and this next group. Benny Anderson was in a popular Swedish group called the Hepstars in the mid-1960s. Meanwhile, Bjorn Ulvias was in another group called the Hootenanny Singers. The groups crossed paths while touring Sweden in the 1960s, and Benny and Bjorn got to know each other during that time. In June of 1966, Benny and Bjorn decided to write a song together called Isn't It Easy to Say? The Hepstar's manager, Stig Anderson, who also owned a record label, thought that the song was good and told Benny and Bjorn to write together some more. In 1969, Benny and Bjorn submitted a song to the Swedish festival Melodifestivalen, which is the festival that picks the country's representative for the Eurovision Song Contest every year. While they ended up second in voting that year, one good thing did come out of it. They met Annefried Lingstad, nicknamed Frida, who was also in the competition with her own music. Frida was an up-and-coming singer-songwriter in her own right and had already made a name for herself in Sweden and had performed on national television. Bjorn and Frida started dating and eventually got married. The last member of this soon-to-form group was Agnetha Falskog, who was also a singer-songwriter and who had a number one song in Sweden at that point. Benny and Agnetha met during a festival in 1969, became a couple, and then married in 1971. While all four of them were on vacation together in 1970, they decided to not only keep writing and producing each other's music, but to also do music together as a group. Also right around this time, manager Stig Anderson wanted to break out of Sweden and make a name for himself internationally and decided that he was going to work with the new quartet then known as Bjorn and Benny, Agnetha and Annefried. After a while, they got sick of saying their full names all the time, so they shortened it to ABBA. 
To date, none of them have officially said whose name is which letter, so figure that the first A could either be Agnetha or Anifred, depending on the day. ABBA's first hit was the 1972 hit People Need Love, which was released in America on Playboy Records. That actually confused a lot of people who thought that since it was on Playboy Records and it was a song called People Need Love and was done by two women and two men, then it must be softcore and porn or, well, you know, you can see why people might think that, I suppose. Also in 1972, the group tried to get into the Melody Festivalen yet again by submitting the song Ring Ring. They ended up third this time, but they released the song and it became a big hit in Europe. Still, they wanted more. In 1973, ABBA decided to submit a song to Melody Festivalen yet again. They were going to submit the song Hasta Mañana. However, that song only showcased one of the two singers, so they decided on a song that was specifically written for that year's contest. They had submitted a song the year before, but it didn't quite make the finals. So, this new song was recorded on December 17, 1973, and was purposely produced to sound like a Phil Spector Wall of Sound production. This time... They won Melody Festivalen with this new song, now named Waterloo. The group decided to be different from every other group at that year's Eurovision. They dressed in flashy silver outfits, complete with big boots. They also had choreography, and the song was upbeat, two things that the contest actually wasn't used to at that time. The plan worked to a charm. Waterloo, about a woman surrendering her love to a man, won the Eurovision contest. Waterloo was then released worldwide in 1974 and became a huge hit. It went to number one in a few countries and top ten in America. Waterloo has sold over five million certified physical copies with claim sales of over six million copies. Also, in 2005, Eurovision had put out its list of best songs in the 50 years of their contest at that time, and Waterloo was voted number one. After the success of Waterloo, ABBA were off and running. Songs like Mamma Mia, Fernando, Money, 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 Knowing Me, Knowing You, That's the Name of the Game, Take a Chance on Me, and of course the iconic Dancing Queen became worldwide hits. They toured relentlessly in the late 1970s. Unfortunately, it also put a lot of strain on their marriages, and both couples ended up divorcing. They still stayed together as a group right up until they unofficially broke up the first time in 1982. Anna Fried, or Frida, then had a big solo hit, I Know There's Something Going On, which was produced by Phil Collins. The group would sometimes get together over the decades for special events such as the Swedish premiere for the movie based on their songs, Mamma Mia. Funny thing was that as the decades went on, their music found new audiences, helped a lot by movies such as Mamma Mia, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and Muriel's Wedding. There was also a touring exhibit called ABBA World in 2010 that caught everyone's attention, along with an ABBA museum in their native Sweden, an appearance in a dancing video game, a box set, 
and a photo book proving that the power of ABBA never really died. In 2010, the group announced that they were putting out a new album, their first in almost 40 years. The COVID pandemic postponed that a while, but it also gave the band time to develop a hologram concert called ABBA Voyage. That concert is still playing to this day, at least, in London. The end date is May of 2023 at the moment, but it looks like this concert residency is the last thing that the four of them might be together for, although there are rumors of another album coming out in the next year or so. Never say never, but as a reminder, they're not spring chickens anymore. They're all in their mid-70s and are entitled to have the fans just simply enjoy the music that they've made and leave it at that. I think they've earned it. ABBA has sold hundreds of millions of records. They are one of the biggest selling groups of all time. They've influenced different cultures and genders. They won countless awards, and even though they've only been nominated for one Grammy Award, and it was for this year's Album of the Year, their song Dancing Queen was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Presented for induction by Barry and Robin Gibb of 1997 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees, the Bee Gees, ABBA, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, class of 2010. Before we look at this week's case for putting an artist into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Let's look and see exactly how artists are normally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The criteria for being inducted into the hall was originally that, quote, artists had to have had released their first record 25 years earlier and have created music whose originality, impact, and influence has changed the course of rock and roll, end quote. That interpretation has been updated in recent decades to include music that rock and roll influenced like reggae, country, and hip-hop, and also youth culture that music has influenced and vice versa. That's why hip-hop artists get to be inducted now. The different categories that people can be inducted for are for musical excellence, which is for artists, musicians, songwriters, and producers who have had a dramatic impact on music. Also, early influencers, whose artists whose music influenced rock and roll and youth culture like jazz and the blues. The Amit Erdogan Award is also given out, which is named for famed record executive Amit Erdogan and goes to a non-performer who has had an impact in music like record executives and managers. There's also a category that inducted songs that have influenced music like the Trogs' Wild Thing or Sam the Sham and the Pharaoh's Wooly Bully. But of course, the most popular category is the performer category, which has had everybody in it from Elvis Presley to Tina Turner. The different nominating committees decide who will make the official ballots for that year. Then the ballots are sent to a thousand musicologists, executives, performers, and other experts. The fans also get a chance to vote, with that vote usually being held on the hall's website, rockhall.com. Then from that, the final inductees are chosen. Now, with all that being said, let us look at the case for this week's entry. 
Let's look at the case for putting Eric B. and Rakim into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Again, hip-hop does belong in the Rock Hall, so all you people who are still trying to make the argument that it doesn't, just sit down. Now that that's out of the way, to the tale of the tape we go. Eric B. and Rakim are a hip-hop duo whose reputation was built on the strength of four albums between 1987 and 1992. 1987's album, Paid in Full, hit number 58 on the U.S. pop charts and number 8 on the R&B charts. It was also their biggest-selling album, Going Platinum. 1988's Follow the Leader went to number 22 pop and number 7 on the R&B and went gold. 1990s Let the Rhythm Hit Them hit number 32 on the pop, number 10 on the R&B, and also went gold. And 1992's Don't Sweat the Technique went to number 22 on the pop, number 9 on the R&B, but it didn't go gold. As far as singles went, they released 16 of them. Out of those, only 1992's Juice Know the Ledge hit the U.S. pop charts, peaking at number 96. Seven of their songs actually hit the U.S. dance charts, with Move the Crowd and Paid in Full going to number three. They had 12 songs hit the R&B charts and eight songs hit the rap charts, as Billboard and other chart companies were just a little late starting hip-hop charts, which was still considered a fad back when they were around. They were also featured on Jody Watley's Top 10 1989 smash hit song, Friends. What makes the duo worthy of the hall is their influence on hip-hop, especially their style. They used dark beats instead of the pop sound that actually dominated hip-hop back then. They also free-flowed their raps instead of landing each one perfectly on the two and the four beat. They also incorporated jazz into their mixes, starting an experimental period in hip-hop that became known as the golden age of hip-hop. They were massively influential with just about every rapper thereafter. Rolling Stone magazine named them the fifth greatest duo of all time, regardless of genre. Let the Rhythm Hit em, Paid in Full, Move the Crowd, which was actually name-checked on LL Cool J's classic song, Boomin' System, and Don't Sweat the Technique are considered hip-hop masterpieces, especially Paid in Full. The duo made the list of 15 for the Rock Hall back in 2011, but did not make the final cut. It's about time that Eric B. and Rakim at least made the final list. Will they make it this year? Maybe, but that's why I'm putting this out there, because Eric B. and Rakim should definitely be highly considered for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they deserve to be in. In America, the main lobby group for the recording industry and the one that gives out the Grammy Awards is the Recording Academy. Its Canadian equivalent is the Canadian Academy for the Recording Arts and Sciences. Their versions of the Grammys are the Juno Awards. In 1978, the Canadian Academy started inducting groups into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. The physical hall was opened in 2016 as a part of the National Music Center on Level 5 of Studio Bell on 
850 4th Street Southeast in Calgary, Alberta. The center is open Thursday to Sunday, 10 to 5. The price of admission is to pay what you can. As with everything these days, though, check with their website for COVID restriction information. StudioBell.ca is their website. Unlike the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which normally has six or more artists inducted, depending on various category committees, the Canadian Hall usually inducts only one group into its hall per year. In fact, it's only inducted more than one artist per year, six times since 1978. There are some artists, though, who have shamefully not been inducted. So, for the next couple of weeks, I thought we would make the case for putting these two artists in. The first one is probably the biggest Hall of Fame snub anywhere, and there is simply no good reason why she is not in already. In fact, once I say her name, you're going to be surprised, like I was, that she isn't inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, at least by now, one would hope. Celine Dion, told you you'd be surprised, was born near Montreal, Canada and started out as a child singer who sang French music. At the age of 12, her brother sent a recording of her singing to manager René Angelil. At the age of 15, she made her first French album, which did very well. She then competed in the 1982 Yamaha World Popular Song Festival in Tokyo, Japan, and got top prize. A year later, she was the first Canadian artist to get a gold record in France. She spent the rest of the 1980s making hit records in French, but then she saw Michael Jackson perform and realized that she wanted to be world famous, and in order to do that, she needed to learn English. In 1990, she released her debut English-speaking album, Unison, which had the hits If There Was Any Other Way, The Last to Know, and Where Does My Heart Beat Now, which became her first top 10 hit in America. She also ended up duetting with Peebo Bryson on the theme song Beauty and the Beast, which gave her international stardom. The rest of the 90s were spent getting hit after hit in the adult contemporary market and recording in French as well. After her 1996 chart-topping album, Falling Into You, Celine went into the studio to record her follow-up, Let's Talk About Love. On the record were songs with Barbara Streisand, Luciano Pavarotti, the Bee Gees, Corey Hart, Carole King, and more. She released four singles off the album within four months of each other. The first single, Tell Him, was released on Halloween 1997, with the album coming out two weeks later. Four weeks after the album came out, she released Be The Man. Almost three weeks after that, she released The Reason. She released the fourth single only three days after releasing The Reason. The fourth single has a bit of a backstory. At that time, there was a movie being made about a famous ship that sank. The movie at the time was the most expensive movie ever made, with initial budget cost of around $250 million. The movie was supposed to be released in the summer of 1997, but it got pushed back until winter so that director James Cameron could do more work on the movie. As it turned out, that move was extremely advantageous for the movie, because 
if it had come out in the summer, it would have gone up against other big blockbuster movies. But as a winter release, it had the movie landscape practically all to itself for a number of months. Film composer James Horner gave the song an instrumental theme throughout the movie. He then decided that he actually wanted a theme song to run with the credits. James Cameron wasn't actually thrilled with that idea. Turns out neither was Celine, who did not want to be known as the soundtrack go-to woman after the success of Beauty and the Beast. Both of them had to be convinced, but eventually both were. The key to Celine's album, as it turns out, was that song, My Heart Will Go On. Celine had it on her album before it ended up on the Titanic soundtrack, so people who loved the song ran out and got her album. The movie about the sinking ship, of course, Titanic, ended up becoming a huge hit. In fact, it made megastars out of everybody associated with the album. Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet, and Billy Zane became big stars. James Cameron, who was already a bankable director after hits Aliens and The Terminator, ended up with the biggest movie ever made and held the record for a decade until another one of his movies, Avatar, took the top spot, which, of course, as everybody now knows, is owned practically by Avengers Endgame. As for Celine... The song was nominated for a bunch of awards and won an Academy Award for Best Song. And the album, Let's Talk About Love, went on to sell over 31 million records worldwide. 10 million of those were certified in America alone. In the 2000s, Celine shifted gears slightly and started working on her touring game. She was one of the first artists in the 21st century to do a residency in Las Vegas. While she put out a few more studio albums in the past 20 years or so, she's been mainly touring and taking time off to raise her family. Within the span of one year, though, Celine lost two loves of her life to cancer, her husband, Renee, and her brother. Still, through it all, she has survived and persevered. Celine has sold hundreds of millions of records, has influenced tons of singers, is considered one of the most respected and admired singers of the past 40 years, and yet she's not inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, her home country? How is this even possible? I doubt that they'll do it soon, but if they want to be seen as a respected Hall of Fame, then they really need to put one of their biggest exports in there. Celine Dion, who has yet to be inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame for some reason, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And that is it for the Music Halls of Fame podcast episode number 41. Thanks for listening. Audio engineering and editing, video editing, writing, narration, basically everything having to do with this podcast is done by yours truly. You can find us on our website at cjbtproductions.com. Our podcast is on all of your favorite podcast providers, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Spotify, etc. 
all under Music History Today. If you would like to support this podcast, our Patreon can be found at patreon.com backslash music history today. We are also on Twitter at music history day, and you can now find us on YouTube. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit that notification bell anytime you want to know exactly what videos are dropped and when. All of those links can be found in the show notes below. Thank you very, very much for listening.